Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. Before we get started today, we'd like to tell you about 2ProfitU.com, a ministry resource packed full of articles, quotes, book reviews, and commentary from Drs. Michael Catt and Warren Wiersbe. Sign up for free today at www.2ProfitU.com. That's the number 2, Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, U.com. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I have never met anyone who wanted to blow it. I've never met a person, any individual of any age, who said, I want to make a wreck out of my life. I want to fail. I want to blow every opportunity I have. I want to ruin my life. Nobody starts out wanting that. But the truth is, there are a lot of people who ruin their lives. They blow it. They fail themselves. They fail their family. They fail their friends. They, they didn't start out wanting to do it. They didn't start out intending for that to happen. It just happened. It happened because they succumbed. They succumbed to temptation. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I want us to learn from that temptation experience of our Lord in the wilderness how He expects us to handle temptation, how He expects us to respond to it. The word temptation is from a Greek word that means to make a search of or to search out. The word is parazo. It, it means to seek out, to find out something about you, to discover something what it is that Satan is seeking out and searching out is he's searching out that area in your life where you are vulnerable to attack, that area where you are weak, that area where you are easily caught off guard or blindsided or you're vulnerable or your defenses are down, that area where it seems like you don't get any victory. And so in that area, he entices you and he seduces you and he baits you to try to bring out that lust that was in our hearts and get us to take his hook and to take his bait. In this world in which we live, there are many, many opportunities to sin. The world around us gives us all kind of appealing things to look at and to see and to want. Discipleship Journal did a study last year on the areas that cause people the most problems in temptation. Number one in America was materialism. Number two was pride. Number three was self-centeredness. Four was laziness. Five was a tie between anger and bitterness and sexual lust. Seven was envy, eight was gluttony, and nine was lying. No matter which of those categories you fall into or if you've got your own list to make up, the truth of the matter is for all of us, there is an Achilles heel. There is an area of our lives where Satan seems to be able to snatch away any victory that we have. It seems like just about the time that we're on track and moving ahead with the Lord, we get blindsided. He gets us. We fall. We fail. We submit. We yield. And he's got us. I want to read the first 14 verses 
Because you see, the biggest problem is not knowing what is right to do. The biggest problem for us is doing what we know is right to do. And so Jesus in the wilderness temptation gives us an example of how we are supposed to live. Let's begin reading in verse 1, please. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I want us to discover this morning some truths about temptation. There are some things that we need to understand. I, I'm a big sports fan, and uh, there's going to be a lot of ana analysis done this afternoon on what the Chargers are going to do and what the 49ers are going to do. The truth of the matter is, by 6.30 tonight when church starts, that game's already going to be over. Because it's, no matter what the Chargers do, the San Francisco's going to know how to get through it. So you don't need to watch the game tonight. You just come to church, put it on your VCR. Now that we got that out of the way. I'm also a basketball fan. There's something that you discover if you play basketball. You've got to know what the tendencies of the opposition are. If they play a zone defense, if they play a man-to-man, -man, if they're going to press you on the inbounds pass, if they double-team the ball, if they're going to play a box-and-one, then when you know that, then you begin to understand this is how we attack their zone, or this is what we're going to do against their man-to-man. -man. Why? Because once you know it, you can effectively deal with it if you're prepared. If you're thinking, if you execute your game plan, you can deal with what you have to deal with and move on and win the ball game. In the same way, Satan has his own game plan. He only has three plays that he runs. He only has three bullets in his gun. He only has three arrows in his quiver. And no matter what form temptation takes, it automatically and ultimately gets boiled down to three specific areas. First John defines them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now let's talk about what temptation is, because once we understand what it is, then we understand how to attack and how to deal with it and how to confront it. First of all, this account in the life of our Lord establishes the fact that there is an existence of a personal devil. 
There's the existence of a personal devil. Now, we're not talking about a little guy that's dressed up in a red suit with a little tail and horns on his head and a pitchfork in his hand. We are talking about a personal being created by God, Lucifer, the son of the morning, who rebelled against God and fell and lives even today and is given freedom today to attack you and I. There is a personal devil. Now, the thing that is important about this story, and I, you, need to, you need to grab this and you need to understand it. In the garden, Satan slipped in like a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve. In the perfect environment, he came in and said, it's not good enough. You deserve more. But in the wilderness, Jesus brings Satan out into the light so that you and I can see him and see how he operates. He doesn't let him work behind the scenes. Satan is brought out into the light by the Lord, led there by the Spirit, and he brings him out so we can understand the method of operation, the game plan that Satan has in trying to attack us. Secondly, temptation is real. Temptation is real. This is, in fact, a preview of our own temptation, how Satan will tempt us, how he's going to come at you this week, this month, this year, this afternoon. We will be tempted. Satan is going to come against us. It is real that you and I are going to be tempted. But there's a third one, and that is temptation is not sin. You say, well, oh, I've been tempted, so I must have sinned. No, you only sinned. Temptation is the invitation to do wrong. Sin is the voluntary doing of that wrong. You choosing to do it. Temptation is not sin, because if it were sin, then Jesus sinned in the wilderness by the very fact that he was tempted. But Jesus was tempted, and he sinned not. Led there by the Spirit, verse 14 tells us he left there in the power of the Spirit. Why? Because he was tempted, but he did not yield. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he did not sin. Temptation is not sin. Fourthly, Temptation often comes when we least expect it. It often comes when we least expect it. Now, it can come after a, a great victory. Some of the worst times in our lives are on the heels of some of the best times in our lives. After a great revival, after a great camp, after a great conference or a Bible seminar, after a great concert, after a great high moment in our lives, it comes on the heels of a, of a great victory. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, the perfect environment. They've just had fellowship with God. Satan slips in and pulls the rug out from under them. It happened to Elijah on Mount Carmel. He calls down fire from heaven. The next day, he's running from Jezebel, and he's saying, Oh, God, the things are so bad, I wish you'd take my life. You see, I'm glad God doesn't believe everything we pray. Because if Elijah had wanted God to take his life, he'd just stayed put, and Jezebel would have done it for him. You see, sometimes it comes after a great victory, after a high moment in our lives, and we let our guard down. We let our defenses down. Abraham fell in his walk when he went into the presence of Pharaoh and he lied about Sarah. What happens? God brings a victory in our lives and we begin to think, since I am walking in victory and since I am filled with the Spirit, I am now immune 
from temptation. You are not. Secondly, not only can it happen after a great victory, it can happen in the midst of a trial. It can happen in the midst of a trial. The Jews in the first century understood the wilderness to have a twofold purpose. Their belief was that all the demons lived in the wilderness. And if you've ever been there, in that stretch of terrain that runs from Jerusalem to Jericho with no trees and it's hot and it's dry and it's parched and there's nothing to satisfy you in that wilderness, you would think it was hell on earth. But there was another reason for the wilderness. It was where Moses and Abraham and others went to meet God and to have a deeper experience with the Father. And so from the Jews' understanding, the wilderness existed. And when you went in that wilderness, you would either fall to evil or you would stand with a strength that God gave you from fellowship with Him. It happens when you least expect it. Number five, it could come in an area of your strength. It could come in an area of your strength. Watch out if you ever say, I would never do that. Because you just invited the devil to come over and spend the night. Don't ever say, wouldn't happen to me. Don't ever cross your hands and look down at another believer who's fallen into sin and say, boy, I tell you, I can't believe they did that. That's disgusting. I'm not going to have fellowship with them. I guarantee you the devil will go to the presence of God in that moment and say, give me permission to test them in that area. Don't say it'll never happen to me. <clears throat> now, parents, a word for you. If you raise your kids in the church and teach them the things of God and reinforce what the church is teaching, let me tell you where your kids are going to have problems. They're going to pretty well decide. They may experiment on occasion. They're going to pretty well have decided about drugs and alcohol. But where they're going to have a problem is in the area of sexual relationships because our society is not telling them to say no. Our society is not telling them to wait. Our society is just telling them, as long as you're protected, you're okay. Now, I used to get in all kind of trouble when I did parents' conferences when I was in student ministry, when I'd say this, and I'd always have parents challenge me, and it amazed me, especially when I'd do them in my own church, the parents that would challenge me, I would know that their kids were sexually active because I knew what the talk in the youth group was. You are throwing temptation in the face of your children when you let them date at an early age. You are asking for it. You are baiting your own kids when you think that at 13, 14, and 15 years of age, they can handle a boy that they've got a crush on coming after them because they're looking for acceptance, their hormones are going crazy, they're out of control, they want somebody to love them, they feel awkward about themselves, and anybody that will give them attention, they will give themselves to. A boy will give love to get sex, and a girl will give sex to get love. You mark it down. The greatest problem among Christian teenagers today is that they're dating too early, they don't have any curfews, and mom and dad are turning their head the other way and believe everything's going to work out okay just because they bring them to church on Sunday. 
Well, it won't happen to my kid. Well, I can tell you right now, we've got a lot of kids that go to churches in this town that end up in that crisis pregnancy center over there getting tests to see if they're pregnant. You want the numbers, we'll give them to you. Over half the girls that have come to the crisis pregnancy center come from churches where they've been taught differently. Never happened to me. Never happened to my kid. Never happened to my family. Watch it. You just allowed Satan an open door. You've given him the key under the rug to the door of your house. Number six, God allows us to be tempted. Mark chapter 1 and verse 12 says, And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. God allows us to be tempted. Why? Because until your faith has been tested, it's not really proven. You see, in that temptation, there is the possibility of seduction. But there's also the possibility of strengthening, that you and I can be strengthened in our faith that we can be strengthened in our walk with God because we have survived the test. There is the possibility that it is the devil's avenue to destroy us. But there's also within it the possibility that it is God's avenue to develop us. It can be the gateway to disaster, or it can be the gateway to building a stronger relationship with God. Do you remember what God said to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? God will allow us to be tempted, one, to show us what's in our heart, and to give us the opportunity to prove our faith. God does not lead us to sin, for there is no sin in him. But God will allow us to be tempted in this world, and that's a fact of life. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, is what James says. But God will allow temptation. He will allow it to come into your life. Seven, we never get beyond temptation. Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That word finished doesn't mean that he was through. That word finish means he was retreating to regroup. And if you're not going through an intense time of temptation right now, it's not because the devil's through with you and decided, well, I tell you what, they're members of that good church down there. We just might as well forget about them. They've already got all this thing licked. They've got the whole Christian life figured out. No, he's just retreated to regroup so he can come back at a more opportune time. You see, you may be walking right with God right now, but he may know that six months down the way you're going to get your eyes off the Lord just a little bit. And so he's going to wait for that time. He's going to watch out. He's going to tempt. He's going to search out the moment. He's going to seek out the opportunity when he can come and when he can get you. We are never beyond temptation. I love the story of the 18-year-old boy who was walking down the street with his grandfather who was 85 years old. And this beautiful girl comes walking by them, and the boy, you know, he's there with his grandfather, and he feels awkward because he's looking at this girl. And, and so finally they, they, the girl gets past them, and he looks at his grandfather and says, so when did you get over that bothering you. And his grandfather said, not yet. <laughs> now let's talk about disclosing his appeal to our flesh. 
You remember 1 John says that it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The first temptation that we'll deal with is this appeal to our flesh. Remember, he's got three ways that he attacks. He went to Eve and he attacked her through the lust of the flesh, through the lust of the eyes, and through the pride of life. See and look, taste, you will become as God. It's the lust of the flesh. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, indulge yourself. You've got a right to do it. Now notice what he says. He says, if you are the Son of God, that particular word, if, would be better translated, since you are. Satan is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the very Son of God. He is admitting who Jesus is and what he has come to do. If, since you are, if and you are the Son of God, you've been 40 days without food, tell these stones to become bread. Indulge yourself. You've got a right to be happy. God made you with these appetites. And since he made you with these appetites, he must want you to satisfy those appetites. And so satisfy them in a way that seems best to you. Now, Jesus, you're hungry. Your Father's pleased with you. You've just left the wilderness. You've just left the baptism. You've just heard the voice of the dove saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit has been with you. Your Father's proud of you. You've been here 40 days. You deserve it. Tell you what, Jesus, take these stones, turn them into some blueberry muffins, and let's have some breakfast. You've got a right to do that. You're the Son of God. If Moses can command water to come out of a rock, surely as the Son of God, you can command bread to come forth from stones. So have at it. Make yourself happy. You're hungry, meet your need. You've got a desire, you've got a need, why not feed it? Now, I want you to notice something in verse 3 and verse 4 because this is pivotal to us understanding how to have victory in temptation. In verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, tell or command these stones. In verse 3, Satan is appealing to the deity of Christ. Now, this is important. Write it down with lipstick, mascara, or a pen. He is appealing to the deity of Christ. He's saying, since you are God, do this. Satisfy yourself. But notice in verse 4, man shall not live on bread alone. Now in verse 3, he said, prove yourself. If you are, then do this. Put up or shut up, Jesus. This is a test. If you're the Son of God, show us you're the Son of God. But Jesus does not respond as deity. He responds as man. Anthropos theos, God in flesh. He responds as a man. Now here's why that's important. Jesus never used his divine powers as God for his benefit or for his own personal advantage. He said, Satan, you're coming to me and attacking me as God. 
I will defeat you as a man. It is written, man shall live, not, not live by bread alone. He is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Now here's what Jesus did. He overcame him on the human level. Jesus as a man, God in flesh, reacted and responded to Satan as a man and with the word of God and in the will of God, he said, not going to do that. That's not going to happen. I refuse to play that game. You're not going to appeal to me as a man. I'm not going to satisfy my physical hunger because I have been feeding off of my relationship with my father spiritually. And so he responds. But here's what he says. Here's what Satan's implying. Nobody's looking. Nobody's watching. Come on, Jesus. Just the two of us. Listen, Jesus, if you'll do this, I won't tell you, Mom. Jesus, if you'll do this, it'll be just between you and me. Satan and Connie Chung have a lot in common. just between you and me, what do you really want to do? How do, how, do, how do you really feel? Go ahead, Jesus. Do it. Indulge yourself. Feed your flesh. Have at it. Have a party. Make some bread. Do it. Please yourself. You've got a right to do it. You're hungry, you're in need, here's the moment. Feed your flesh. Satan always attempts us and tempts us to satisfy ourselves in the physical realm and to find our peace and our significance in what we have or in what we can get rather than in who we are. He always works on us on that basis, but Jesus does not respond. And he quotes this verse of Scripture. He says, it is written. Now, you know what we do. We say, see, that's how you defeat Satan. You quote Scripture. That's not enough. You can quote Scripture. You can say, man does not live by bread alone with your eighth jelly donut in your mouth. <laughs> it is not just quoting the Scripture. It is obeying and living under the authority of the Scripture that you're quoting. It's not enough to have it in here if it's not down here in your feet and in your hands and with your lips. You see, it's not enough to just tell the devil what the Bible says. The Scriptures say the demons believe and tremble. They know all what the Word of God says. In fact, we'll find in one of the later temptations that, that since Jesus quotes Scripture, Satan starts quoting Scripture. Satan knows more Scripture than you do, but he doesn't believe it. You can know the Scripture, but it's not knowing it. It is obeying it and living under its authority that gives you power. And so Jesus confronts him. Here's what Satan does. Satan has a very shallow view of life. He thinks life is lived on the level of the five senses. See it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. 
And if he can get you to live your life on the level of the five senses, then he's got you in the lust of the flesh. If you think that life is found in bread, then you'll give your life to making bread. Let me ask you something. What bread line has he used on you? What are your stones that he's telling you will make you happy? Is it a relationship? Is it a thing? Is it materialism? Is it gluttony? Is it pride? Is it ego? What is it? What is it that he keeps coming to you and saying, live your life on this level and you'll be satisfied? You will for a moment. Sin does satisfy. Sin is enjoyable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it. But it satisfies for a moment. He gives a buzz in a twinkling, but not in the long view of life. In that brief moment, yes, it feels good. It satisfies. We feel good about ourselves. We think, this is what I want. But when we see where it takes us, we find ourselves empty because we're feeding on stale bread. So Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, he used that one on Eve, didn't he? Well, there's a lot of fruit in this garden. Man, look at these orchards. But you know what? Real fruit is found in that tree over there that God said you can't have. Hey, David, David, you got a wife. She's a good one, but she's not like Bathsheba. That's the one you want. That's the one you need. That's the one that will make you happy. That's the one that will satisfy you. And we keep falling for the lies. He appeals to our flesh. And I promise you that if you believe that the answer to life is found in the five senses, he will make sure that you find some semblance of an answer in your five senses. But when you finally discover that life is found in living in the will and the Word of God, then you will find to be true the words of Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am living water. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 4. I want you to see something for a moment. John chapter 4, Jesus is passing through Samaria. And you remember, I'll summarize the story until we get down toward the end of it. He's passing through Samaria, and uh, he gets to the well. And he sits down at the city water fountain, and he sends his disciples off to get some Happy Meals. So they go into Samaria, and they're going to buy some box lunches, bring them back. They're going to have a little picnic around the water fountain. And in verse 28... He has been talking to this woman who shows up, who's had five husbands, and he begins to tell her everything about her life, and he begins to confront her with the fact that he is the true Messiah. And in verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, 
Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Verse 31, in the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They came back, brought all the happy meals, spread the table. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples were saying to one another, Who brought him a happy meal? Where did he get food? Uh, did he pack a peanut butter and jelly sandwich this morning that we didn't know about? Where did he find a lunch? How's he been fed? We, we just got back here. There's been nobody here except that woman that went tearing past us into town. Nobody could have brought him food. He couldn't have created anything out here in the middle of nowhere. Where did he find food? And Jesus said to them, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, when you do what God tells you to do spiritually, he'll meet all those needs that you think you've got to meet on your own. All those five senses that you keep running after to try to satisfy them, to satisfy your taste and your smell and your sight and your hearing and your feelings, all of those things. You see, you can fill yourself up with the things of this world and die an empty person. No, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm not going to turn those stones into bread. Because you see, in the will of God and in the Word of God, I have found enough to fill me until I can get the right kind of bread. Chuck Swindoll's book, The Finishing Touch, he has a devotional in there. It's called Surprise Attacks. Let me just read a portion of it if I could. We get our theological ducks in a row. We make sure our eternal destination is sealed in a fireproof safe. We surround ourselves with a predictable schedule that protects us from contamination with a lost world. And then like a 600-pound grizzly, we settle down for a long winter snooze. Our hope, do not disturb till the rapture. And we're content to spend the balance of our lives as unconcerned and uninvolved in our world as a silverfish crawling over a pile of discarded Time magazines. There's only one problem. The battle continues to rage no matter what the season, from spring to summer, in relaxed autumn and icy winter. Whether we choose to believe it or not, this is important, it is so easy to forget that our adversary, like our advocate, neither sleeps nor slumbers. With relentless, unslacking energy, as sure as this morning's dawn, he's on the prowl seeking someone to devour. He's been at it for centuries. By means of a brilliant strategy, an insidious scheme, he takes advantage of our mental dullness. Surprise attacks are his specialty. Small wonder that Jesus kept urging his followers to be alert and to watch and to resist, to keep a clean crop free of the stuff that chokes the word, making it unfruitful. Why? Because you never know when you're in the crosshairs of the scope of the enemy's high-powered rifle. It could be today that you will be the target. When you least expect it, in the lazy days of summer, in the cool days of autumn, in the fog of false security, under the frost of a laid-back lifestyle. He's looking for you. He's primed and ready to fire. And he doesn't wait for hunting season. In fact, as far as Satan is concerned, it's always open season 
on Christians. Are you ready for the danger? Some of you this week, something will happen in your life that will be the difference between you being successful in your Christian life and you blowing it. Some of you this week, Satan is going to put his crosshairs on you and he's going to come gunning for you. This is your week that he goes after you with the lust of the flesh. This is your week that he puts that irresistible temptation to make a quick buck, to have a cheap affair, to get something free and easy, a get-rich-quick scheme, some strategy that he lays in front of you and says, it's too good to pass it up. And you get your stones and you find out that they're stale bread and that you've bought a lie and you've failed yourself. Or you can be aware and know that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You can be aware and know that we are not ignorant of his schemes. You can be aware and know that there is no temptation come your way, but God has made a way of escape. The choice is yours. He's coming. The question is, do you know what he's going to run against you when he gets there? Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed, please? The scriptures say, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Nobody here intends to fall. Nobody here intends to blow it. But some will because they fail to watch and pray. And they fail to realize that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.